Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we're continuing our series on politics in the 1850s in California. We'll be continuing to look at the Know Nothing Party before, in our next episode, moving on to the Democratic Party. Let's get started. Last time, we concluded the podcast with the election of J. Neely Johnson as the governor of California, which is where we will resume. In his inaugural address as the new and incredibly young governor, Johnson first preached financial responsibility. He wanted to attack the ubiquitous corruption in the state head-on, as we had discussed last time at length. Here are a few of the suggestions that he mentioned in this inaugural speech. First, get rid of unnecessary government offices. Second, reduce government fees. Third, create a more streamlined legal procedure to ensure speedy judicial proceedings. Limiting government expenses by beyond $300,000 for anything save outright war, and more. Secondarily, in his speech, he addressed the national crisis head-on by stating, clearly and definitively, that California was a part of the Union and would not be joining in secession movements. Thirdly, Johnson pointed out that his predecessor had overused his veto power, and that tool was meant to be used sparingly. In spite of this, Johnson, when he actually came to power and began to sign bills into law, used his veto power somewhat liberally, which suggests that the inaugural address was perhaps a sign of youthful, and remember, Johnson had just reached his 30s when he was elected governor, naivete. Johnson did sign many important bills into law that helped move California in a positive direction. He legalized mechanics liens, which is a way for contractors who are not paid for work done already on a property um, to force the property into foreclosure. He created health and safety inspectors for food. He consolidated the state debt and created a plan for repayment. Johnson also ran into a few other issues during his administration, including dealing with cost overruns in the state prison and debt from Indian Wars. But by far, the most eventful situation during his term had to do with the vigilante or vigilance committees in San Francisco. We've discussed vigilant, vigilance or vigilante committees in some detail before, but let's do a quick refresher. And I will be using the term vigilance and vigilante somewhat interchangeably, even though the words do have some different meanings, because they tend to refer to the same thing. These kinds of committees are organized in the absence of professional law enforcement. Many have compared them to lynch mobs, but lynch mobs tend to be situational, arising during moments of racial strife over alleged crimes or situations of particular pathos. Vigilante committees, in contrast, were ongoing organizations that likely served as both enforcers and deterrents to criminals. There are two main versions of these vigilante organizations. Some were organized in northern states to assist runaway slaves in the 1850s after the passage of the updated with teeth Fugitive Slave Act that unleashed a wave of bounty hunters into northern states. These bounty hunters sought to return runaway slaves and often kidnap free blacks as well. These committees had a clear and expressed purpose, which was to protect black people in the north. 
The committees in the West, by contrast, were more fluid and sometimes their expressed purpose differed from their outcomes. We all have visions of the, quote, Wild West. Almost every Western film has a similar trope. In the absence of law and order, criminals are free to operate with impunity. Enter a John Wayne-type character, who is not a law enforcement officer, but a law-abiding citizen who wants to restore justice and protect the innocent from criminal activity. Sometimes the hero, mark in quotation marks here, can be more mythic, lacking human flaws or having some kind of over-the-top goodness. Or sometimes these characters can be a type of anti-hero, a kind of Batman-style character who's willing to take on the darkness in order to restore order. There are many ways that we can deconstruct these tropes, motifs, and themes, but that's not our purpose. For all the mythos in these visions, it is true to say that there was an absence of professional law enforcement in the West. There was crime, and there were vigilantes who stepped in to bring their vision of justice to fruition in the West. The sticking point, then, is who the justice was for. What vision of the world did these vigilantes hope to create? While some certainly sought to protect the weak from criminal activity, more often than not, these vigilante committees' actual purpose was to protect property rights, which, if you think about certain kinds of incentive structures, makes a lot of sense. While there certainly were noble humans in the West who sought to protect those who could not protect themselves from criminals, Vigilantes had many more reasons to protect private property like ranching rights and mining claims. In California, this could mean protecting property claims of powerful white men from immigrants or native people who might challenge those arbitrary lines that were drawn. There were some vigilante committees that were organized around the premise of ridding corruption from local government. In New Orleans in 1858, one of these vigilante committees was organized to rid the city of corruption. This particular committee said that the city of New Orleans was run by thugs, people that were taking advantage of the system in order for personal gain. This particular vigilante committee organized um, in preparation of an upcoming city election in which they believed that the Know Nothing Party was going to be successful. And then, after being asked to stand down, defiantly stated they would disband after the city both agreed to pay them as well as acknowledge them as city police. This is an example of the type of vigilante committee that we will be addressing now in returning to California with J. Neely Johnson and the second vigilance committee, which was operating in San Francisco. The creation of this vigilance committee followed the murder of a prominent San Franciscan who referred to himself as James King of William. King was born in Maryland in 1822, and in an effort to stand out, he added the patronymic surname of William. And I agree, it adds a kind of panache to his name. Like some previous characters we've discussed, King went west in 1848 after working as a bank clerk in the Midwest. Also, like many of our previous characters, King assumed that he would be successful in the gold mines and was prepared to strike it rich working in the mines. But, like many before, he went to the diggings, saw the reality, and pivoted to using his banking skills they acquired working as a clerk to open his own operation in San Francisco, where he immediately prospered. 
King was ultimately betrayed by one of his subordinates who made a bad bet on an investment in Sonoma County, which led to King declaring bankruptcy and being forced to close up his shop. Angry and bitter about his situation, King pivoted to journalism and created a paper called the Daily Evening Bulletin, where he promised to expose the corruption between bankers and politicians, an area he likely had experience with and inside information. King took aim at almost every subset of society in San Francisco. The more editions that King published, the more extreme and almost biblical he began to be in his calls for justice. The newspapers were not happy that King's rag was stealing readers and attention. In one case, King published an editorial alleging that the editor of the Sunday Times, a rival paper, was an ex-con and had served time in Sing Sing. The editor of that particular paper, a man named James Casey, loaded his pistol and waited for King on his way home from work and shot him mortally in the street. While King lay dying in a hospital bed, there was a massive outcry due to the popularity of King's paper and a mob formed under the auspices of being a vigilante committee. And after King finally succumbed to his wounds, the committee determined Casey's guilt amongst themselves and hung him in the streets. This is a scene that J. Neely Johnson entered as the governor of California. Johnson came to San Francisco at the behest of the mayor of San Francisco, who at the time was James Van Ness, who the famous street in San Francisco is named after. Unlike many of the men coming west, Van Ness was an educated man who had both a bachelor's and a master's degree. He became an alderman, which in most cases just means the same thing as a city council member, and worked on land right issues in San Francisco. He was eventually elected mayor of San Francisco in 1855. Many claim that his election was fraudulent. In addition to the murder of King, on Van Ness's watch, a U.S. Marshal was murdered, and then the murderer of the U.S. Marshal was executed by a vigilante committee as well. Van Ness set up a meeting with William T. Coleman, the leader of the vigilante committee, and the governor. Coleman, a businessman who was actively involved in both vigilance committees, including the earlier manifestation in 1851, decided to take the meeting to negotiate. Apparently, the negotiations did not go well, as Johnson resorted to ordering the soon-to-be-famous William Tecumseh Sherman to raise up the state militia and institute martial law in San Francisco. Johnson proclaimed that, this, that San Francisco was in a state of insurrection and ordered the vigilantes to disband. As the situation became more and more tense, Johnson conferred with General Wool, who served as the commander of the Department of the Pacific and would earn the honor of being the oldest serving general in the Civil War just a few years later. He discovered, in talking with General Wool, that he needed the signature of the president in order to use any form of force. President Pierce refused to provide his consent. Essentially, then, it became a standoff between the governor and the vigilantes until the angst could settle down and dissipate. This situation with the Vigilance Committee in San Francisco was the death blow to Johnson's popularity and efficacy as a state-level leader, but it also served as a nail in the coffin to the Know Nothing Party in California. The following year, Johnson gave his annual message to the state legislature, where he focused much of his time defending his actions in San Francisco but also discussed ongoing issues with indigenous people, 
where he proposed removing them from the state entirely as he saw reservations as a pathway to their destruction. That was a minor point, though, as his primary focus was the state's massive budget issues, which he proposed addressing by raising income, property, poll, and licenses taxes. He continued to list many of the ongoing issues related to state constitution, the organization of city and towns, the state prisons, and many other budgetary issues. The message was received by the state papers as one of the most meticulous and ablest programs proposed by a governor that they had witnessed. Johnson continued to try and remedy these problems throughout his administration, like all politicians, recording some wins and some losses. He particularly focused his attention on crime by calling for houses of refuge for young criminals. He also wanted to build a state capital. He wanted to put aside a reserve of cash for future financial outlays. He also vetoed many measures that he thought would not improve the welfare of the state and dealt with the impeachment of his state treasurer. Ultimately, Johnson was not considered for renomination by his know-nothing party. Not that Johnson would have necessarily been interested as after this he pivoted to the private sector, at least for the short term. Eventually, Johnson relocated to Nevada where he served in the Constitutional Convention and then was appointed governor before going on to many other ventures. The end of Johnson's administration corresponded closely with the end of the Know Nothing Party, not just in California, but across the country. The Know Nothing Party, or the American Party, along with many of the other nativist groups, got pulled one way or other according to sectional lines. Anti-slavery-leaning Know Nothings joined the Republican Party, and their pro-slavery counterparts joined the Democratic Party. There were still many contingents of the American Party that persisted, though, particularly along the border areas of the country where native, nativism and xenophobia made a lot of sense. The nativist sentiment would flare up later in California around the issue of Chinese exclusion, a topic we will come to revisit much later in this podcast. But for the most part, the party remained a minority force in the political field, but their influence in all parties would remain persistent. The story of J. Neely Johnson really illustrates how nativism can work within parties and flare up and dissipate according to larger national and global issues. I will end by quoting at length from a wonderful article in the Smithsonian Magazine by Lorraine Basselnote about the legacy of the Know Nothing Party. Quote, America fought the Civil War over slavery and the devastation of that conflict pushed nativist concerns to the back of the American psyche. But nativism never left, and the legacy of the know-nothings has been apparent in policies aimed at each new wave of immigrants. In 1912, the House Committee on Immigration debated over whether Italians could be considered full-blooded Caucasians, and immigrants coming from Southern and Eastern Europe were considered biologically and culturally less intelligent. From in the end of the 19th century to the first third of the 20th, Asian immigrants were excluded from naturalization based on their non-white status. People from a variety of groups and affiliations, ranging from the Ku Klux Klan to the Progressive Movement, Old Line New England Aristocrats, and the Eugenics Movement, were among the strange bedfellows in the campaign to stop immigration that was deemed undesirable by old-stock white Americans, writes sociologist Charles Hirschman of the early 20th century. The passage of immigration restrictions in the early 1920s ended virtually all immigration except from Northwestern Europe. These debates and regulations continue today over refugees from the Middle East and immigrants from Latin America. 
Philip's conclusion is that those bewildered by current political affairs simply haven't looked far enough back into history. One can't possibly make sense of current events unless you know something about nativism, he says. That requires you to go back in time to the know-nothings. You have to realize that the context is different, but the themes are consistent. The actors are still the same, but with different names. And to conclude, I will say that nativism will continue to be a force in California politics, and we'll see many resurgence of it going forward. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.